Being a Catholic, I believe in order, tenderness, and piety. May the bridges I burn light the way. Okay. You are listening to the Cathedral in the Pines Radio Hour. Why is America not the greatest the country in the world, Professor? That's my answer. You're saying yes. You're... And yeah, you, uh, sorority girl. Just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is there is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom... I'm looking at a fucking song! They hate us because they ain't us. Baby, haters gonna hate. Haters gonna hate. This is what you do to haters. You just smile. From a historical perspective, July 4th is truly the greatest holiday. The world was a lot smaller back then, and when you think of the landscape of New England down through the Georgia coast, that's a lot of ground to cover to unify a nation. Not only to unify a nation, but to rebuke who by conquered rights currently owned it. 
The story of America's birth is truly one of the greatest underdog stories of all time, and that's what initially made it my favorite holiday. But now that I'm older, I have this sort of great appreciation for domino effects and how the energy America's founding fathers had invigorated other people, people like my ancestors. All my ancestors knew was the story of America. They hadn't been there, seen pictures, Googled it, FaceTimed someone there. They had only heard about it. And somehow, the allure of that story, the story of America, got them to uproot what could have been 1,000 years of a traditional home just to see what America could offer, not just them, but for who came after them. They knew that because of holidays like July 4th in 100 years, their descendants would thank them. They would thank them for bringing them to the greatest country in the world. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Lord, bless us in these gifts we're about to receive, and that thou need to Christ our Lord, in the many parties of Jesus, and Spirit of the Son, Amen. Amen. Jesse, did I ever send you that article I found with Nono from the 70s? It was right after Nona died. They interviewed him about what he thought about living in, in um, America compared to Italy. So he was, here, I'll just read it, it's short, I'll read it real quick. This is from the Manchester Herald. He was 87, so I'm guessing 76, like right after she died. At 87, he is one of the oldest living members of the Manglianese Society, a group of Italian immigrants from the Italian village of Magliano Sabino, who settled in Manchester in the early 1900s. His name is Natale Ruffini, and now he makes his home with his son Enrico and daughter-in-law Ethel at 24 Linus Street. Now let's tell the truth, he says, about his birthplace. I was born there, yes, but the family's farm was a couple miles away from the city of Magliano Sabino. He came to the U.S. as a farm boy of 19, immediately went to work for the Cheney brothers driving a team of horses. But he also went to school five nights a week, determined to learn his new language. He reads and writes very well, his son says proudly. The Manglianese Society was a club for men. They gathered on weekends to play bocce, cards, and to work on the building. But several times a year, they would sponsor family banquets with contests, dancing, and lots of good food. Political leaders and police were invited as guests. They really looked forward to it, Ruffini says. Former Chief Police Gordon was a good friend of mine. He raised pigeons, and so did I, so I met him when the pigeons got mixed up. The banquets must have indeed been riotous occasions. The flagpole was greased up, and young men would try to climb it for the gifts atop, cheese and salamis. Then there was a pig run, with grease again providing the lubrication. Whoever caught the pig would get to keep it. The boys would try to catch the pig and it would slide right out of their hands, Ruffini said, demonstrating with his arms. Ruffini went back to his native country only once several years ago. Ha, huh, I forget when, he says. I like it all right, but I still like it here better. There's more freedom here. I don't know how to explain no. it to you. 
Over there you work on the farm and you never go hungry. Everything you need you raise, but here, he says and his voice drops off. More opportunities, Pop, his son asks gently. That's it, the father says, nodding vigorously. That's pretty cool, right up. The price for freedom. No amount of money can substitute because freedom is a constant struggle. It's pain and sacrifice. It's, 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 it's. This to me is America. That's why I have hopes for it. Why is it that we always, always have to look at the bad side of America? Why is it that the news has to be bad? I know it's not always possible to be good, but there are two ways of looking at our country. We can look at our country as we look at a hospital. And one way of looking at a hospital is to say, look at it. Pain, grief, agony, shrieks, viruses, blood. Is that a hospital? Is that the whole truth? A hospital is also a place for care, love, knowledge, and healing. So it is with America. And believe me, one thing that we should be grateful for in this country is that we do not have to fear a knock at the door. A terrible knock at the door of totalitarian countries. The rest makes us say, what? Me? can choose the eagle. Moses used to see uh, eagles build their nests, and they would build them always high in the mountains, always above a pre uh, precipice. And the mother eagle would, when an eaglet was hatched, would push it over the nest, and it would begin to fall down the crevice. And to the little eagle eyes, it must have looked as if this were the end. And just before it would crash, the mother eagle would swoop under it, carry it up into the sky, and repeat the process until it had learned to fly. And the symbol of our nation is not the lion, it's not the serpent. The symbol of our nation is the eagle flying upwards and onwards beyond the hid battlements of eternity, up, up to God. And so, uh, in that sense, uh, the person who knew what they were doing most uh, had the easiest job. So they'd be riding on the hay truck, stack, uh, receiving bales pitched up to them and, and stacking them into place uh, and making sure that they fit snugly in whatever thing that we were stacking them on. And every truck, you know, we had four or five hay trucks on the farm. Each one had different names. And in my mom's time, it was similar. You know, the hop-along was like the... A legendary hay truck that, that was on the farm for a long time until when I was a kid it was literally rotting into a pasture 
but but in any event, every truck, every wagon had its own order, um, you know, and and our uncles um, n knew the order. Okay, it's the ten wheeler. We're going to stack them three by six. It's the international stake body. We're going to do uh, one upright in the middle and, and two laying down on each side. You know, everything had its own pattern and. And again, those who knew it um, had the benefit of, of riding along, and then obviously we were all following along, pitching up hay bales in the back. But that uh, that benefit sort of reversed itself. Um, I think about this a little bit um, when it comes time at the end of the day. So every you know hey, you, you got to pick up the hay in the field. It's hot and sweaty, but at least it's beautiful. You know you're out you're out in the sun, the blue sky. Uh, and then you ride the hay trucks home and, and you're tired and you think the day is over but it's far from it um, because you got to get the hay up in the barn now uh, and in the same way that you know each each truck has its its uh, own stacking order you know each of the barns uh, and hay lofts that we had had its own stacking order they own you know its own pattern in which you needed to load the hay into it and again you know those most experienced my uncles um, you know, they were the ones who were received the were the final place in the assembly line, receiving the bale in the hayloft to, to stack it in place. And that aspect was awful, awful, because you're high up in the hayloft, you're on your knees, way up in the eaves, uh, dusty as hell, wearing a dust mask. Uh, you know, of course, tin roof, uh, June, July, August, uh, hundred something degrees. Um, and they'd be they'd be putting those final final bales in place, cut side up. Um, and so I think about think about that a lot. Like oftentimes, uh, you know, the most experienced uh, requires you know, even more sacrifice, perhaps. But uh, so in any event, that, those are my those are my uh, summer memories. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, while I think about it, uh, the thing that comes to mind is, is a soundtrack, really, and, and that's the sound of a, of a Massey Ferguson uh, number nine squill baler. So um, instead of the, the drowning noise of traffic in the background, maybe you can thread that in for us. Thanks.
every time their guns were fired, they'd won another round. And when they drove them to the sea, he said, let's end it all with a pinch of powder, a wad of paper, and a little shiny ball. Don't you stop your shooting, boys, until you get them home. Well, they build a monument for... <laughs> award to Gordon. I've known Gordon for a long time, and uh, I know he's been offered this award before, but he has never accepted it because uh, he wanted me to come and give it to him. So, uh, anyway, he's somebody of uh, rare talent and all that. All right, here he is now, Gordon. Written in 1883 by the poet Emma Lazarus, The New Colossus, a sonnet more well known for being inscribed within the pedestal on which sits the Statue of Liberty, contains a passage familiar to many. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. In year of our Lord 2023, many have watched the scenes of another teeming shore along the Rio Grande, but on this July 4th holiday, let us look to the shores of the Great Lakes, of the mighty St. Lawrence River, where those yearning to breathe free have reversed the direction of travel of the infamous Underground Railroad of the past. Under the capricious and vindictive rule of Cuba's most infamous son, under medical apartheid, careers terminated, families torn asunder, a new censorship regime not unlike North Korea's, bank accounts frozen and assets seized merely for having an opinion, the tired of Canada looks south. Though the swamp of D.C. contains rulers of a similar bent, the tired see welcoming, freedom-loving neighbors who take no shit from the petty tyrants of the day and keep on keeping on in spite of it all. Happy Independence Day, America. The northern neighbors need you now more than ever. The United States of America, a gathering of people who came from different countries, spoke different languages, all banding together in a great social experiment. They called themselves We the People. They had a country to protect together, to build together. incredible collection of individuals who had to work and think and invent, who did all the things people had to do together to try to form that more perfect union called democracy. 
200 years later, still growing and changing, still a collection of individuals, still the United States of America. It all began with these documents. People started it, people building it, people helping it grow. People loving it, people moving it, people making it so. It all began to happen 200 years ago. Being from the Sunshine State myself, where I'm from, where you vacation, <laughs> I am well aware that the stereotype is for us to not bat an eye whenever it's below Category 3, but I also know that I was born to shake my fist at the TV screen. Whenever those spaghetti plots and cones of uncertainty come on, knowing that the meteorologist certainly has it wrong to some degree. <clears throat> it was about two years ago that I was in New Orleans and Hurricane Ida was about to hit that I had the foresight to get out of Dodge. It was when the mayor said, <laughs> the levees are going to save us. <laughs> the levees are going to save us. Unfortunately, it turned out to be a windstorm that day, and the levees didn't do anyone much good. But friends a little less experienced than I, much less experienced than I in regards to these storms, ended up scrambling to find shelter in the friends of, well, rather the families of friends' homes. <clears throat> and they stayed there for weeks at a time while we were evacuated for upwards of a month. They were shown true hospitality at that time. And I suppose it's that general, true American spirit that overtakes so many people at one time when volunteer groups just come swarming after the debris settles. It's that same reflex that gives us such a strong desire to go on mission trips or fundraise for any cause <laughs> under the sun. We in the Gulf South exist in that place somewhere between 
drunken hurricane parties and emergency response groups. At least in the summertime. And if I had one piece of advice to give, if you were to throw a hurricane party this year, it's that warm rum tastes better than warm beer. bass fishing boat, you know, a little low-profile thing, and he would um, and be taking out fish and whatnot, but this 4th of July, he and my cousin Randy decided to go watch the fireworks underneath um, the sky, and in the boat, you can get right underneath the fireworks. They're being launched from the shore, and the, uh, Going, exploding over the water area. Very wonderful sight. There's, there's some, I don't know, river equivalent of Coast Guard boats out there trying to keep us away from all this, you know, embers falling down and poking our eyes out. So they're telling us to stay back, and that's all good and fine. Now, my cousin Randy and Greg and Gary, who previously mentioned, he, um, they like to drink um, your typical. Hams, but that's really not the point of the story. The point of the story is when the fireworks are all done, we're heading back up the river to the landing. Gary, he's too drunk to drive his own boat, so Randy, he's driving, he's doing just fine, and he's cruising along probably five knots, five miles per hour above the posted or floated speed limit. At some point, I'm in the front of the boat looking backwards. I've got, you know, my little spectacles on. I've got my sandals on the boat. And I'm just, whatever. T-shirt and shorts. And, and all of a sudden, I hear, hold on, Billy. The next thing I know, I'm underwater. Not knowing what happened, but shortly thereafter, re recollecting the last few seconds of my life. And I'm underwater, and I'm like, oh... The boat flipped over. I'm underwater. What are these bubbles around my face? Oh, these are bubbles that are going up. Let me go in that direction, right? Remain calm. Uh, and I float to the surface. And there is a outboard mercury propeller blade slowing down, like turning off finally, in, right in front of my face. So I think, oh, this is great. Glasses are gone. I'm blind, barefoot. So wood pilings, right? So wood pilings, I don't know, anything? like old docks that used to go out into the middle of the water for logging. It's just these old little sort of what used to be piers or no longer piers. They're just kind of 
right there below the water line and he didn't see it and he hit it and it just went just fair he hit him and kind of like evil Knievel just twisted flipped it around the point where I was sitting was then the boat was then perched on a wood piling just conveniently lodged there but I got flew out like trebuchet into the water Roosevelt once said, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best, if he wins, knows the thrills of high achievement. And if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Here we have July 4th, 1976. All right, so I'm 11 years old. We had just finished visiting my aunt, and that's how it's pronounced, in Montreal. Actually, Greenfield Park, Quebec, which is the South Shore. And yes, it's called Greenfield Park. All right, so we were in America in this nice big house in this uh, small town. And why were we there? I don't understand this, but even at age 11, I understood that I was experiencing the bicentennial of the United States in Massachusetts, close enough to Plymouth Rock, shall we say, close enough, right? New England is all one giant swamp, I'm told, by, by a notable podcaster, right? Uh, it, but I understood that at age 11. I spent decades after that with the reflexive Canadian anti-Americanism, right? And I only really lost that after did my research and wrote my book about Canadian English, right? Because Canadian English is fundamentally American English. Even though you sound different for me, you and I are both speaking American English right now, right? And so the, I, I'm not reflexively anti-American 
uh, anymore. I think that's quite childish, actually. Listen, I was at the bicentennial of the United States, inside the United States, in the New England swamps. Top that. Happy birthday, America. You were born in 1776. 200 years of love, freedom, and progress. And in wishing you a happy birthday, I can hardly contain myself. You see, I know you well. I love you, America. Some would like to tear you apart, scorn you and destroy you, and I've seen some burn your flag, and some curse you, denounce you, while others have even deserted you. Sure, we've had our Benedict Arnolds, but we've also had our Washingtons and Lincolns. And right now, I see people sneer at you, laugh and ridicule you, because you are experiencing some problems and difficulties. But in my eyes, you are sacred America. So cheer up, America, and be of good faith, America. Be strong, because we love you. And again I say, happy birthday, America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Happy birthday, America. Whenever I think of America and the 4th of July, um, the first thing I always think about is is this little town in, in Michigan where I went for vacation from Chicago and um, we'd go to the beach all day and the parents would just be drinking beers, bring a cooler there, um, go back just to eat, hang out at the beach, totally roasted by the sun. The lake was so beautiful. I mean, it is really still such a beautiful beach blue water and and yellow sand light yellow sand and um beach grass behind and then on the fourth of july there was fireworks usually like either the day of or before or after and it would be timed with a local radio station <clears throat> that would uh place you know the various famous American songs, National Anthem, and Stars and Stripes Forever, um, America the Beautiful. Everything is big and brash, but like, you know, also very, I don't know, cozy, orderly. Um, you know, at the, on the one hand, I really love some of my memories. Um, lots of my memories, lots of my experience, the culture I grew up in, 
Um, and on the other hand, I think like a lot of people, I was taught to kind of hate, hate it or think it was beneath me. Um, on the one hand, I love where I'm from. Um, if I could today get to choose the life that I had growing up for my kids and know that it would be relatively unchanged, I would choose it now, right now. Um, I might not have a decade ago, but having searched all around the world for for some some sort of facsimile of my own childhood, um, I've come to realize that, you know, I, I really don't need to search that far. I, I don't think anything can replace the place that's your home, uh, your people, your family, uh, where you come from. And I do feel pretty resentful about uh, what happened, the kind of messaging I got in college and grad school about, you know, the place I came from, the people I came from, the kind of fetishizing of other people around the world who are just like the people I came from, but because they're exotic, uh, it's somehow more acceptable, but they shared so many of the same values and um, so much of the same culture. I'm in Europe right now and I just think about how like the Europeans speak so quietly to one another. And every time I've ever been to Europe, I'm just always the loudest person anywhere. <laughs> and you know, to me, this is like part of the American character. It's like throwing your head back and cackling loudly, I feel like, you know, it's not really uncouth. It's it's kind of beautiful. There's a joie de vivre in it, like a, a lust for life. Um, manic and insatiable in some, some good ways and some bad, you know? Um, so I, I root for it. Um, I think there's so many, so much beauty in America, so many great principles also just just really kind people um, despite a lot of the propaganda against Americans really very very kind people yeah I'm I'm coming around to to appreciating my home more and more the place I'm from and uh, I hope to come back wonderful Americas, but I'm sure I'll never know. And there are many wonderful freedoms afforded to me by being an American, but the greatest freedom by far is the freedom for me not to care one way or the other about them. I hope those other wonderful Americans feel the same way I do and resolve to enjoy their Americas as much as I do mine. My America is defined by the Kennebec River, a place called Merry Meeting Bay. I love the earliest America, and Merry Meeting Bay is an early America. 
I take great delight in rolling one for the ride and driving the back roads. I squint and see only the old houses. I imagine what it was like in the old days. You should imagine it too. Imagine your name is Nathaniel Edgecombe, newly arrived in a place the savages call Sagata Hawk, or at least that is what it sounds like to you when they grunt it out. The first thing you do is build a little Roman temple in the woods in defiance of them, with a massive chimney and kitchen hearth you can stand up in. It too is decorated in the Roman style. You built your house facing south, down the river, and into the sun. You were the first man. The greatest writer of my America is Robert Tristan Coffin. You need to love your place like he does, like I do. You must believe it is best. And learn to speak of it in a way that makes them envious, but forbids them. Here is how he describes this early time and this early place. Whoever it was with European blood in his veins that first feasted his eyes on the fine point lace of Maine firs with the mountains behind them, who first saw the enamel blue of the Kennebec River running through a light like that inside of a cut crystal, will probably never be known. It isn't every day that a man can sail into the lower end of a rainbow or into a river like crushed diamonds. He could smell Maine far out at sea, with so much babery and sweet fern. The poet Drayton knew his Maine. When as the luscious smell of the delicious land, above the sea that flows, the clear wind throws your hearts to swell, approaching the dear strand, will the happiest men be frolic then, let cannons roar. Starting around third grade, my parents would send me to church camp for a couple of weeks every summer. I loved everything about it except for the July heat in Tennessee. The mess hall and the canteen were the only air-conditioned buildings. For a lot of us, church camp was the first place that you got a girlfriend. You'd sit together and hold hands and sneak out into the woods to make out. We used to play kickball, tell ghost stories, mud wrestle. It was great. But the most memorable part of camp for me was the Friday night bonfire altar call. We had a worship service every morning and night, but Friday night was the big finale, what my buddy called the harvest. At some point in the week, the counselors collect a bunch of deadfall into a giant bonfire. This was a big camp, so there was plenty of wood, and these bonfires were huge, about the size of a mid-sized truck or larger. We would all gather around the bonfire on the edge of a field, right around dark, and we'd sing hymns, and then, without fail, the most bad boy counselor would be chosen to deliver the sermon. A couple of years, it was this guy called Stump from Tupelo. The Friday night sermon would involve the untimely death of one of his buddies, often in a motorcycle accident. 
The punchline being that the friend had not been saved and was burning in the fires of hell just like the massive bonfire behind him. And by this time, usually a few of the kids would be in tears. But not me. I enjoyed watching the show. The counselors would make the altar call and usually a dozen or so kids would come forward. Then we'd all hike down to the swimming pool for the baptisms. I know some people look back on that sort of thing as traumatic, but I enjoyed the pageantry. I remember sitting cross-legged on the concrete beside the pool in the dark, belting out as the deer, while one by one my fellow campers were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It was a rite of passage. The older he got, the less likely my father was to darken the door of a church, showing up to the odd Christmas mass every other year or so at most. And the less he went to church, the bigger everything else about holidays became. Christmas, Easter, even Halloween were big productions, full of elaborate ritual and nostalgia. The summer was a marathon that began with Memorial Day, cemetery visits for cleaning and planting. It was the only day my father ever talked about his father or my sister both of whom passed early and suddenly. The kids and the women would head north early in the summer and stay at the chateau in the mountains for most of the summer, followed by fathers and grandfathers as work allowed, but always for the fourth. Nothing was bigger than the fourth. The weekend before we tailgate by the river and watch the town fireworks, but the real display was at home the day of. My old man would buy arsenal on clearance the day before the fourth from shady state line dealers who made their money fleecing mass holes. He'd save it for the following year, and every year it got a little bigger. After a while, we couldn't afford to go up north all summer, but we'd still make the day trip for fireworks. The legend of my dad's party began to spread. He built a giant rotisserie smoker out of an oil drum in the axle of a dump truck and painted it to look like an American flag. He roasted whole pigs. So many people came that our yard turned into a campground. We'd watch the fireworks way too close while embers fell on our heads. Then a small circle of cousins and close friends would play cards on the deck until dawn. If we were quiet enough, the adults would let us boys stay up late and linger on the sidelines while they drank and chomped cigars and told dirty jokes. When we got older, we'd sneak beers and play fight with burning branches out of the bonfire. The party outlived my parents' marriage. It outlived my father's second marriage. It took a third wife, retirement, and cancer to finally slow him down. These days we just drink cheap beer and smoke cigars by the pool and watch my kids, his grandkids, swim. Some of them are old enough that they'll have their own kids soon. We talk about the people that are gone and the hard lives they live. We talk about how lucky we are to be sitting here in between jail and cancer, how much worse it could be. We wonder how long it will last. But today it's summertime in America, and the living's easy.
Thank you.